If you'd like to open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. <clears throat> one of the things that, uh, before we read chapter 7, one of the things that has really struck me um, about, about how we as Christians think, as human beings, how we think, and it's become more and more apparent, I think, in our culture. But what struck me is the tendency that we have to think about life, life issues, as choices between right and wrong. We often see in front of us just two choices. Either one is right and one is wrong, or we often classify these choices as black and white. It's an old phrase. Um, you see things black and white. As a matter of fact, uh, I was fired from my first career job um, not because I was not good at what I did, but when my general manager fired me, it's a complicated story, but uh, I asked him, I said, well, you, why are you firing me? And, uh, and he said, uh, you know why? And I said, no, I don't, and you have to tell me why by law. And he said, you want a reason? Here's your reason. You live in a black and white world, and this is a gray world. And I said, so basically you're telling me I'm too honest, which I knew that was the issue with him. And, uh, and he said, I just gave you a reason, I'll get out. That was, that was how that morning went, and it was not expected that morning either. But we do have a tendency to think in, in terms of black and white, and, and especially as our culture and our churches have become more and more divided, we are coalescing around certain ideas and seeing our ideas as right and their ideas as wrong. And, and we live in this world now where we use the term tribalism, where we're divided up and we are all huddling around our idea and throwing out ideas about what the other people believe and saying they're wrong. And there's no interaction, there's no discussion between the two sides. We just are doing that. And we are creating scenarios where it's black and white and right and wrong. And I think there's at least two reasons why we do this. And, and I often say there's at least two reasons, and I say that because every time I say it, it's a reminder to me you, live, you, you think in black and white terms because I always come up with two reasons. And it hit me one day that I should come up with three or five or four, but I live in this world of two reasons. But I think there's at least two reasons why we think this way. First, a black and white world is a lot easier to think about. It's just, it's just we, get our little, we get our little idea and we, we listen to people who support it and it's just easier. I don't have to go beyond my idea. I can develop it with my idea, clear support for my view, and I really don't have to think about exceptions to the rule or where I might be wrong if I just leave it as black and white. This is my position. People agree with me. We, we, talk our, we give our talking points. And people end up yelling talking points at each other because we think in a black and white world. It's an easier way to think. And secondly, I think one of the reasons we do this is because this, this approach 
of holding my views and everybody else is wrong who doesn't agree with me, this approach is very self-assuring. It's very self-affirming. It makes me feel better about myself. I have good arguments. I have good reasons for why I believe this. And, and you're just wrong. And I'm right. And oh, by the way, not only are you wrong, but you're less of a person. Do you sense that out there today in the discussions that are going on? You're less of a person because you don't agree with me. You're less righteous because you don't agree with me. I am the moral one and you are the immoral one because you don't agree with me. And that's, that is coming from both sides of the arguments out there. And so there is this natural tendency for us to have our little silo and live in our little silo with the other people who agree with us. Uh, the problem is you end up in that silo alone because eventually somebody who's living in the silo with you doesn't agree with you either and they have to go build their own little silo and people end up alone. But what I have learned over the years, and especially since I've been a pastor, um, is that life is full of gray areas. It's not so neatly packaged as we'd like it to be. When I taught in the college classroom, you could teach from a black and white perspective. You had people who hadn't thought or lived long enough to really have good arguments back against your position. And so, so it was very easy to live in a black world, black and white world. Suddenly I hit this thing called pastoring and it wasn't so black and white anymore. And the decisions that had to be made and the circumstances that presented themselves didn't fit in my packages anymore. And it, it was good for me, but uh, uh, it was hard. It's not a black and white world. And here in chapter 7, I'm saying all this because in chapter 7, Solomon really challenges us to move beyond our comfortable thought packages and, and polarizing positions that see life choices as only right or wrong, bad or good, and to see life in a different way, to think about life in a different way. And what we're going to find with Solomon is that he's going to use a word here quite often in chapter 7. So I want you to listen to him. But he's going to use a word here that points us to it, towards a different way of thinking. Um, and thinking from a perspective with a long view, not the short view. The long view of life. I want you to listen carefully for that word, and that word might make you a little uncomfortable as you think about what he's saying. But, but if you understand what Solomon is saying through that word, I really believe he turns our thinking upside down about how we should view life. So let's read verses 1 to 14, and you listen for that word as I read. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. 
This is also vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is from wisdom, for it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves this life of him, preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what God has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let us consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Did you catch the word that Solomon was using? Better. Better. I think better is a slippery word. I don't like the word better. It doesn't fit in my silo. I like good and bad. I like best and not best. I don't like better. I was at home this week in the afternoon and I was studying on this and, uh, and reading through it and I just put my head down on the table. Terry walked by and I said, I don't remember exactly what I said. I said, oh, I, said I don't like reading Ecclesiastes. I just, it just was one of those moments. And, and it was because of this better word. I don't like it. Better does not draw a line in the sand or put a stake in the ground. I want to have this position, and I want to know that this position is the best position because it's the right decision. But Solomon says, think about life not in the sense of what's best, specifically compared to something else, but think of it in terms of better. Better isn't the same as right or you should do this. Isn't it easier when we know exactly what we should do? But there's a lot of, there's a lot of things, especially when we get in the New Testament, that it's, it's not even spoken to. There's issues, there's choices, there's, there's thinking that the New Testament leaves open. And people want to say, you should not do this. And the question is, well, show that to me. Show me some principle that leads me there. Show me something that, that says that. And, I, and you can't. And so then we end up with people living together in homes and in churches and at work and, and they're Christians and one thinks this is the way you should do it and the other one thinks this is the way you should do it and which is the right way? And the answer is, what's the better way? Better just kind of leaves me hanging in the wind. It leaves the door open for other choices or other ways of thinking and speaks against groupthink. And, and when you read something like, a good name is better than precious ointment, well, that one's easy to deal with, but it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. And there's a whole lot of room in between the house of mourning and the house of feasting. Right? 
Better says this way is superior, but better doesn't say the other way is wrong or bad. It's just better. It's a whole lot easier to say one or the other, do this. And Solomon is saying both and, but there's one way that's better when we live under the sun. And with this approach, Solomon speaks to us about four experiences or perspectives of life, four things that touch us um, as we move in this world. The first is death and sorrow. The second is rebuke and correction. The third is the end or conclusion of something. And the fourth is wisdom. And those four ways are the better ways. How many of you, if you were given a list of which is better, would check off death and sorrow as better? But that's what Solomon does here. He compares each of these to an opposite thing. The first, birth and laughter. Death and sorrow are better than birth and laughter. That is not how we think. We celebrate birth. Birth is a wonderful thing. Birth speaks of hope. And death, we tolerate. We live in this world where death is constant, but we avoid it and we tolerate it at best. We, we are full of sorrow. And we don't like sorrow. But Solomon says, just so you know, as you live under the sun in the rubble of Eden, Sorrow and death is better than birth and laughter. He speaks, secondly, of praise compared to rebuke. Anybody here like to be criticized? Anybody here like to be rebuked? But Solomon says rebuke is better than praise. It's the better thing. Beginnings. He speaks of compared to endings and he speaks of inheritance against wisdom. I think for most of us, this list seems backwards. That's the point I'm trying to make. And that was the thing again with Solomon that just left me going, oh, it just drives me crazy. Why can't he just say something that is cheery and makes me feel good and lets me walk away going, I can't wait to tell this to these people. But instead, I'm wrestling with how in the world is sorrow better than laughter? How is death better than birth? I also think that at least some of us, and this is what I did the first time I read through this, and and my mind kept wanting to go this way. It's a funny thing with Ecclesiastes. Even when I know what he's saying, and even when I know the point that he's trying to make, I have a hard time when I go back and read it again to hear it correctly. I really struggle with that. But Solomon, the way he says this, I don't know that all of us hear it the way that he intends us to. I don't think that we really hear the word better, and I don't know that we listen carefully enough to hear Solomon's logic. I know I wasn't, and I know that my natural tendency with it is not to. We hear the word with our ears, but our brains are not connecting. And something inside of us pushes back at Solomon's logic. 
It pushes back on the notion that sorrow is better than laughter. But Solomon's argument here is not for right or wrong. And I want to keep emphasizing that. He's not arguing for what is right and what is wrong. He's arguing, he's not arguing that sorrow is good and laughter is bad. That's the way we have a tendency to hear it. Sorrow is good and laughter is bad because he's setting up this contrast and because we have a tendency to think in black and white, we immediately assume or our our spirit inside of us wants to push back and say, no, 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 Solomon's laughter is better than sorrow. Laughter is the good. Sorrow is the bad. But Solomon would say back to us, I'm not saying one's bad or good. I'm saying one's better. He's not prohibiting any of the choices on this list. Nowhere on this list does he say, stop laughing, start crying. He simply says, sorrow is better because we live under the sun. His premise for his argument is found in verses 13 and 14. And we'll come back again to this, but I just want to read for right now this word consider consider the work of God who can make straight what he has made crooked there's a theological question for you to deal with he has made crooked bent twisted is the meaning of the word Who can make straight what God has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Consider. Consider the work of God. Consider that both the pleasant and the unpleasant Both the pleasant and the unpleasant aspects of our lives are purposed and crafted by our God. And we have to, this considering puts us in a place where we have to take a long view of life and come to conclusions about what is the better, the more valuable choice for us as we live this life under the sun. First, he says, for those who live with the long view in mind. Those who live with the long view in mind, they are people whose heart is in the house of mourning, he says. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to the, than to the house of feasting. They're, they're, they're taking the long view and they, they see the house of mourning They have a reality of death in their mind. And that brings to them an awareness of how we should live in the present. Now, a couple weeks ago, I said that Solomon told us that we should not live in the future and enjoy the moment. And I still stand by that. We should not live in the future hanging all of our hopes on things under the sun. We should not live in the future worrying about what is to come or what we might miss. 
We're to live in the moment and enjoy the moment, but at the same time, we are to live with a long view. That is not living in the future, it is just aware of the future. Certain things are coming in the future, and one of those certain things is death. Death comes to all of us. And Solomon says your perspective should, for this life should be driven by the fact that this life is short and death comes. He refers here to a good name in verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment. And he links that to the day of death rather than the day of birth. A good name is something with the long view that you have to earn. A good name is something that is developed. A good name doesn't come quickly. But a good name can be destroyed quickly. It can be done quickly. And so we as people are to live in this rubble where the mess is all around us, understanding that when it's all said and done, it won't matter how much you owned. It won't matter how many toys you had. What will matter is how you lived your life and the reputation that you left this earth, that, that, that was present when you left this earth. A good name. As a pastor, I have over the years, and I've said this before, over the years been scared every time I hear of another pastor who has had a moral failure. Been too many to count. It seems like as time goes by, it's increasing. Um, and I, I remember going back when I first became a pastor, Terry and I were traveling and, uh, and we, we knew there was a guy who was close to us as far as his advice. He was an associate pastor at the church where I grew up in. He was the guy that I went to and talked about whether or not he thought I was qualified for ministry or disqualified based on some of my choices uh, before that time. He was very important to us. We were going to be in his area for a vacation, and so we actually showed up at his church, and uh, that night kind of surprised him and went out for, for dessert with him and just chatted. I, I held him very high in esteem, and he had a very good name. A few years later, when he was in his mid-60s, um, uh, there was a moral failure, and he was out of ministry. And... I remember Terry, I mean, for both of us, it was just a shocking moment. One of the last guys I would ever expect. Um, it was a scary moment for me because of if, if that could happen to him, what could happen to me? He's a much better guy than I am. He's much more down the road. I was 41. And uh, Terry, Terry, in her sorrow, said um, he was so close. He was so close to being finished just a few years away from being done as a pastor and, and stopping with that good reputation. And it, it was all just erased. But I would say that, at least in part, I think that if we hear the words of Solomon, 
If we live with a long view and our heart is in the house of mourning and we understand that there's going to come a day when we die, it will affect our choices in the moment. Basically, when that happened with that individual, and I'm not trying to be judgmental of them, I still hold them in high regard. But, but in that moment when those choices were made, he was not thinking of the long and we had gone through the adoption process and their name now was Yankee. And I sat down with the oldest one because he was the only one who would understand it at that time. The other ones were three years old and two years old. I sat down with the oldest one and I said to him, I gave you something today of great value. I gave you the most valuable thing I have. And that's my name. And you're getting a good name. And I told him about his great grandfather and I told him about his father, I mean his grandfather. And I, I said, these men have left me a good name and I will not be able to leave you with much of anything, but I hope to be able to leave you with a good name. And you have this name now and you have a choice of what you're going to do with it. That's a long term view. That's a, that's a view that lives with the end in mind that death is going to come someday. He's not arguing here about great wealth. The precious ointment uh, refers to great wealth. He's not arguing that you shouldn't be wealthy. If anybody walks away from Ecclesiastes and Solomon and says, Solomon's against being wealthy, you misunderstood Solomon. He's not. He wants you to understand that wealth is not the final thing. It's not the long view. It's not how. You, it's not what you should live for. And in fact, it's better than than wealth is a good name. Ultimately, those who consider God understand that in the end, man answers to God, and it's his assessment of our reputation that's most important. Those who consider God rightly also realize that death is part of our experience under the sun. You cannot escape it. There's no way to get around it. We are all on a path to death. It is part of the rubble of Eden. And God has brought death as a penalty for sin. He promised to Adam if he sinned, he would die. We cannot undo what God has made crooked. We cannot undo the penalty of death. And when we accept this reality, I think it brings a new awareness and perspective to sorrow. In our sorrow, we begin to realize what is most important and what is most lasting. We begin to realize what is most valuable. In fact, the more we become aware of death and the more we become aware of sorrow, the more we realize what is most important and what is most lasting. I remember when I was a teenager and I remember my teachers in high school and I thought they were all ancient, every single one of them. There was one guy who was probably in his 50s and I viewed him as probably in his 80s. But my teachers in high school, I thought they were just one step away from the grave and they were so old they couldn't understand my life. They were out of touch. And then 
later on in life, I realized that they were all in their mid-20s to early 30s. And now I look back on that age period, and it's just like, that, that's not in those kids, man. That's not, you know, sorry for those of you who are in those ages, uh, Tim, Papa, and you know, others. But uh, I, I just saw them as old, and they didn't know anything. And, and then when I got into my 30s, it was just like, I have arrived. And I understand the world. And I've got all the answers. And boy, you just need to come and ask me because I have it. And then I hit my 40s and I was still cruising along pretty well. And then 45 hit and my body started doing strange things. It just started falling apart. And it was not doing the things it did before. And I started feeling like something's, something's happening to me. It's like your car that you've had for a long time and you've loved it and all of a sudden it's starting to make a weird noise. And what's going on with my car? And you take it into the shop and this car that you think is fine, you find out has this serious issue underneath that there's nothing, you know, you can't afford to fix it and then you got to drive it. And that's the way my body was. It was happening. And then I got into my 50s and things really started to change. And now I'm in my 60s and I feel like I'm a foot away from the grave. But everyone at this stage in life will tell you how fast it went. It's just like that and it was over. And, and now I'm at 61 and thinking of my dad died at 86. If I make it to that long, that's, that's 25 years. And 25 years was like a blur. And he lost four years because of dementia. And by the way, dementia is genetic in my family. My grandfather had it. My dad had it. Not normal Alzheimer's, a specific kind. And so then I'm thinking 20 years. 20 years. And it's going to go like that. I can't believe it's September. It just, it just flies by. It just whips past us. And now that I'm 61, I think I'm finally beginning to live more in light of the house of mourning than I did before. It's finally starting to hit me. I think a lot later than it should have. I'm finally beginning to think about in strong terms of what is most important and what is most lasting. And as I, now as I perceive the brokenness of this world by living in the house of mourning, I begin to mourn the brokenness more. I begin to realize that I can't change, I can't stop the brokenness. I can't make the brokenness go away. In fact, I've begun to realize that after 20 years of pastoring, I probably haven't changed that much in this world. There's been a few people here and there that God has used me in their lives, but I haven't accomplished any great things. And when I'm done pastoring, I've really come to realize when I'm done pastoring, it's foolish of me to think that Northbrook is going to stay the same way. It's going to change. Living with the long view helps us to put into place what's most important. And what's most important is not what Northbrook will be like when I'm gone, but what the people of Northbrook are like today. 
Sorrow of the soul, Solomon wants us to understand, combined with a long view produces a compassionate, empathetic, and faithful life. That soul that has the long view in mind sits with the broken and listens to the broken and hurts for the broken and never says cheer up or get over it. The person whose heart is in the house of mourning understands the grief and pain of the person who actually is living in the house of mourning. This soul never says it's time to get over it because that soul knows that that person still lives under the sun. But in a way, difficult way for us to, and something that's difficult for us to understand is that sorrow produces gladness in the long term. Sorrow produces gladness in the long term. We're also told that the end of a thing is better than its beginning. And thus, this is an interesting phrase. Thus we should not long sentimentally from for the past. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness the face of the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of the morning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools, for as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools, and this is also vanity. Oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Now, here, verse 8, better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. So don't say, why were the former days better than these? Don't say, why were the former days better than these? Don't say anything about the good old days. And I think if I had you raise your hand, if you feel like life was better back in a particular era, a lot of hands would be up. Because we have a tendency to look back sentimentally at our past and see those as better days. Some people don't understand this and some people get offended by me saying this. You'll just have to deal with that and understand that you don't understand everything and not everything is black and white. In 2011, we adopted three children that turned our world upside down. We did not have our hallmark moment with our adoption. I've said this before that I have, I have a friend, Steve Benton, who's the pastor of faith. If you are traveling and you want to know where to find good food, you call Steve or you send him an email and he'll give you a list of every place you're going to be in with the food that corresponds to it, where to eat. And he's learned that because he travels and eats. I wish I was Steve Benton because I wish that I could be the expert that everybody goes to about where to eat when you travel. But God had a different choice for me and for Terry and for Rachel and Alyssa. Terry and I are the people now in this area that if someone's having troubles with their adopted kids, we'll typically get a reference from those people and be in contact with them. 
and we listen to them and we cry with them and we try to offer them some advice. We've been asked to start a support group for kids with what's called reactive, I mean, uh, for parents of kids with reactive attachment disorder. I would much rather be the expert on food when you travel. But God decided, and I'm supposed to consider what God has decided, that these days that I live in are not worse than the days that came before 2011. These days don't feel good. These days are constant reminders to me that I failed as a father. These days are constant reminders to me that I didn't and I still don't have all the answers when it comes to parenting. But I am not, if I am wise, to look back and say, those were the better days. When would you have liked to have lived? During the roaring 20s of 1920s? the first sexual revolution in the United States? Maybe the 1930s, the years of the Dust Bowl and Depression, or the 1940s of World War II, or the 1950s when America got its first taste of affluence and got sucked down the drain of living for money in ways that they had never understood before that's permeated through to today. Or the 1960s with the Cultural Revolution and the riots and the bombings. Or the 1970s of the Second Sexual Revolution. All the good years were 80 to 90. That's when I was in my late 20s and 30s. Those were the good years, the 80s and 90s, right? They just were, everybody knows that. And then the 2000s with bombing of the World Trade Center and all of the wars and things that have followed that still to today. Or now. These aren't, are these the good old days? When would you have rather lived? I've, I've been sentient since the 60s. And I saw the stuff that happened. And the 70s and Watergate and Nixon scandal. I've seen that. I saw the massive inflation and the you want to talk about economic days, try the 19, late 1970s into the early 80s when interest rates were pushing close to 20%, when a house mortgage was between 10 and 15%, and you couldn't find gas for your car. Solomon says, don't, don't live in the past. Don't set up shop in the better days. The reality is these days are going to be the better days for somebody else. For a younger generation, these are the better days. In their mind, these are the good days. But when we talk about the good old days and want to go back to days in the past, it does not reflect a long-term view that believes that God is accomplishing a good thing in all days. See, when I want to go back to prior to 2011, 
I'm wanting to live in a period before God used a lot of things to shape me into the person that I am today that's made me a better person. I want to undo all of the things that God has used to shape John Yonke. You understand that? I want to say that that was the better person when God says, I've got something for you that's going to shape you in ways that you may not like and you may not see as good, but you just need to trust me. A long-term view understands that God is sovereign. A long-term view says, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. And the day of adversity, consider. Talking about the good old days does not reflect that in all days we have lived in a broken world under the sun. The world has been broken since Adam. We need to trust God in the day in which we live. We're called to something different with the long view. We're called to patience. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Now there's an interesting word here. Patient in spirit is, is uh, in the Hebrew, is a long spirit. A long spirit. And the proud in spirit is a high spirit. Patient means I have a long view. I'm, I can be stretched. God can take me through things and I trust him. A high spirit looks at it and says, I don't want this, I don't need this, and I want to go back there. The long-term view is patient. Considers and trusts what God's doing, but it's the fool he talks about here who becomes angry with present circumstances. The fool cries out for the past as if the past had no brokenness. The fool has a perspective that is short. He cannot be content and does not understand that life is a vapor and that the present circumstances will soon be over. And I want to come back to this issue of tribalism and division. Because what Solomon says here causes me to question all of the tribalism, all of the division taking place in our churches to get back to a better day. That is what is underlying all of the division that exists today. We want to get back to an America that was a certain way. We want to get back to a way of worship that was a certain way. We want to get back to a translation that was a certain way. We want to get back to singing certain songs that were a certain way. There are now over 90 evangelical churches, I think maybe around 92 to 93, evangelical churches in Cedar Rapids. Why? Why? Over 90. Just think about that. The day I candidated here, I made a comment to this effect, and it still bothers me today. Why 
with so many churches in this town that are evangelical, conservative evangelical churches that believe in the doctrine of the gospel. Why is Cedar Rapids consistently ranked as one of the least biblical towns, cities in America? Every year the study comes out, every year we're one of the bottom five in the 100 largest markets, media markets in the United States. And then this market goes from Waterloo to Iowa City. And please don't say, well, it's all because of Iowa City, like they're the anchor dragging us to the bottom. I've lived in Cedar Rapids now for eight years. I'm getting a pretty good view of what Cedar Rapids is all about. We are, we are perennially in the bottom five for biblical cities in the rankings. And you know what makes you a biblical city? The question is, for the people in the surveys, how often do you read your Bible? Once a week is all that's required to get considered a biblical city. How often do you attend church? I think it's twice a month is enough to get you listed as a biblical city, to bump you up in the rankings. And we're in the bottom five. We're beneath San Francisco. We're beneath Seattle. We've been beneath New York City. But we have an evangelical church on every corner, it seems like. What's happening? What's happening that over 40% of people in Cedar Rapids consider themselves nuns. They have no religious affiliation at all. That's almost half of the population. We're pushing half. And I would argue that quite possibly the reason we have 90 evangelical churches is because we're divided. Not because we've done such a great job at planting churches in Cedar Rapids, but because we have a lot of churches that exist today because somebody sat back and said, I don't like what they do. They don't use the right translation. They don't sing the right songs. They don't sing the songs the way I like the songs to be sung. They have guitars. They don't have guitars. The pastor doesn't wear a tie. The pastor wears a tie. I feel like I should get up in pajamas because so many people judge you on what you wear. You know? You cannot make everybody happy. But so much of our division right now, at least, is rooted in the better days. I want to go back to when I knew what was going on and it was predictable and that's the way life should be. And Solomon says, shut up. Because your God is sovereign. And, and you need to consider that everything, even though you can't explain it, everything is working towards his purpose. Take the long view. Love him. Follow him. Obey him. And stop wanting to go back. 
Someone could push back this morning against Solomon's argument here and say that Solomon didn't understand the gospel and was just a passive, bitter, depressed cynic who had a wrong view of life. And that Solomon didn't understand that God had a plan to redeem all of this in Jesus and that God intends to give us a, a prosperous and happy life. People want to dismiss Solomon. I wanted to dismiss Solomon for years because I just felt like he was a cynic and he wasn't talking from a biblical perspective. But as I was thinking about what Solomon is saying here, all of a sudden a passage came to my mind. You remember Matthew 5? You remember the the Sermon on the Mount? Anybody here remember the Sermon on the Mount? It's, It's kind of an obscure passage in Scripture. Nobody really talks about it very much or knows a lot about it. But I just want to read you something. Jesus is up on the side of a mountain with his disciples. And there's a whole bunch of people there that have followed them. And it says in Matthew chapter 5 that Jesus opened his mouth and taught them saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek or the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Boy, if we just got gentleness back into our hearts and our perspective. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. There's a whole lot of people pushing for political positions and power, doing it without gentleness. And Jesus says, you want to inherit the earth? Be gentle. Try that one out for size. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and Uh, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be happy, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Does it sound a little familiar? I, I actually think that Solomon, I mean Jesus, might have been referencing Solomon, because there's some similarities there. Maybe he read Ecclesiastes 7 somewhere along the way of life. Jesus seems to adopt Solomon's better way, and Jesus actually takes it a step further than a better way and says it's the blessed or favored or happy way. Somebody pointed out in relation to this passage, Billy Graham once said of this passage, if by happiness we mean serenity, confidence, contentment, peace, and soul satisfaction, then Jesus was supremely happy. We never read of his laughing, though I'm sure he did. He was not given to pleasure-seeking, hilariousness, jokes, or poking fun at others. His happiness was not dependent on outward circumstances. He did not have to have an outward stimulus to make him happy. He learned a secret that allowed him to live above the circumstances of life and fear of the future. He moved with calmness, certainty, and serenity through the most trying circumstances, even death. Jesus always lived with the long view 
Jesus lived with the reality that he was going to die and give himself as a ransom for the sins of mankind. And therefore he lived in a certain way. He lived in the moment. He taught in the moment. He was present in the moment. But he was always, the cross was always in view for him. It's always coming out of his mouth. This is what's down the path, guys. This is where I'm headed. As I was thinking about that, so I, I think that I think that Jesus saying the same thing as Solomon is a pretty good backup to Solomon. I mean, it's a pretty good, you know, if 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 I'm thinking about whether or not I said something correctly and Jesus happened to show up and say what I said, I would think that's a pretty good vindication of what I said. And I think it's a pretty good vindication of what Solomon said. But there's another guy who's somewhat important in the church. He's a early church father that a lot of people don't know about. His name is Paul the Apostle. He's just a small figure on the, you know, a blip on the radar screen of, of church history. But Paul the Apostle actually says similar things to Solomon and Jesus. At first he has this famous statement in 2 Corinthians 5 regarding a thorn in the flesh. Everybody knows about the thorn in the flesh. Most everybody. There's this, he has this thorn in the flesh. And he knew that God had given him the thorn in the flesh, that God had sent a messenger of Satan to buffet him. That's sovereign view of God. And after pleading with God to remove it, to go back to better days, so to speak, when I could do ministry better and when I could think better and when times were easier, before that thorn in the flesh you gave me, Paul says, God told him, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. That sounds a lot like Solomon saying, consider. Consider what God is doing and in days of prosperity, enjoy it. In days of adversity, consider that God is sovereign over all of it. Paul's response then is this, I will therefore boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For his sake then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Can you say that? Can you say that you are content with weaknesses that God brings into your life, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Paul lived with a long view in mind and considered the work of God and understood that he could not make straight what God has made crooked. And therefore, Paul decided that in the day of prosperity, he would be happy. And in the day of adversity, he would remember that God has made the one as well as the other. And I want to close this morning by reading something else Paul wrote. It reflects his long view. It reflects his trust in what God is doing in every moment of our lives. And it reflects that Paul believed in better things, not what's good versus bad. He wasn't hung up on that. He, he lived a life of what is better. And it comes from his second letter to the Corinthian church. And this is another passage that I think is pretty familiar to you, at least part of it. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. 
We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Now, as I was thinking about this, these statements of, of afflicted but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, I can say to you that there was a point in my life where I was not only afflicted but I was crushed, that I was not only perplexed but I was despairing. And I think that as I've thought about it in light of this passage, I think that some of that was related to the fact that I had lost a long view. I was in that moment and had lost looking out at the long view that that God was still in control and God was going to bring me through it. I despaired because I lost hope. And I felt crushed because I didn't understand the the affliction that God was doing and what his purpose was in it. And I think Paul has a long view there and it causes him to see the circumstances differently. He goes on to say, so death is at work in us, but life in you. Doesn't that sound like a happy guy who is just ready to pump you up? Death is at work in us. Just want you to know that. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and brings us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake so that as grace extends to more and more people it may increase thanksgiving for the glory of God. I'm going to say that Paul understood something that Solomon did not understand. Solomon rightly said, have your heart in the house of mourning. Understand that you're going to die someday. Paul rightly says something better. What Solomon said is not wrong. Paul says something better. We are looking forward to when the Lord Jesus raises us and brings us into his presence. The end is not death. We need to live a life understanding that death is coming, but we also as Christians need to live a life understanding that Jesus is coming. And understand that there will be a day that either we raise from the dead to meet him or we see him and we meet him. So for us, the long view goes beyond death to that day. But that doesn't mean we don't live with death in mind. It it should shape how we live now and understanding that this life is a vapor. So Paul goes on to say this, and this is what I want to leave you with this morning. So we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away Our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction. Wow. Knowing Paul's life, those words just slay me every time I read them. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That's a long view. 
as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, a long view. For the things that are around us, the brokenness of this world and the rubble of Eden, the things that are around us are transient, they're temporary, they're not here forever. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us as your people in the midst of screaming voices, in the midst of nonstop barrage of, of our, our podcast feeds and our news feeds, all the emails that are coming into our boxes, all the texts, all the Twitters, tweets that are coming into our phones and our computers, in the midst of this barrage of screaming at us about the present. Help us to consider you. Help us to consider what you have said in your word. Help us to consider that you are sovereign and we can't fix what you have put in place But help us also remember that you are fixing what has been broken. And you are going to ultimately fix all of what has been broken. Help us to be patient. Help us not to long for days that we see as better. Help us not to get angry about what's going on around us in relation to how we would like life to be. Help us to be angry about the right things. Help us to be people who live with you in mind, live with death in mind, and live with the resurrection in mind. And help us to be people whose lives are shaped by all of that and the reality of there will be a day when all of the broken stuff is fixed and we are with you. In Christ's name, amen.